Father, we give thanks this morning for the inexpressible gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, Your Son, while He was teaching on earth, made it abundantly clear that no greater love is shown than when a man lays down his life for his friends. And Christ calls us His friends. Lord, Your great love You showed for all eternity in the death of Christ. You demonstrated Your love for us. We who were wretched, sinful people, turning aside from You, wanting nothing to do with You, yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, how You love us. And Father, may we give thanks for this truth now and always. Father, as we now look to Your Word and we look to an admittedly difficult passage to read through, a, a fearful passage, a harrowing passage, a vivid passage of Your judgment. Father, may we recognize that our only hope is found in Christ alone. That He, motivated by nothing but sheer love, endured what is described in these verses for us so that we can find a hope that will last for all eternity. Father, take Your Word and apply it to our hearts and lives here today. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 1 again. Zephaniah chapter 1. So I'm, I'm trying to, to show you the, the uh, contrast here. Last week we covered a whole verse. This week we're going to try to cover 11 verses. <laughs> um, and by God's grace we will get through that today. Again, we are looking at the minor prophets and their call to till up or to break up the soil of our souls. And we're looking particularly at Zephaniah as we're beginning this study and he comes in and, and shows us how that's done as he clearly, vividly, explicitly describes what God's wrath is. And we see that he is a prophet of both wrath and a prophet of joy. And we will see that in the next few months as we come to the end of his prophecy. Now we have been looking at, and we, we began looking in verses 2 through 6 about how God judges idolatry, that God's response to idolatry, those who turn away from Him and trust in other things, He does not permit, He does not tolerate, He brings clear judgment upon those things. And those who go into idolatry, He promises that He will bring a day where He comes and visits mankind with judgment for their idolatry. And so we began looking last week at a description of the day of the Lord. And it is a description. It is not the description. 
Uh, and as we mentioned before, the day of the Lord is a vast subject in Scripture. Uh, it includes both uh, things that have already happened in the past. Some of the things that we're going to look at this morning have, have actually been fulfilled partially in the events that happened to Zephaniah and to his sons. Um, or I'm sorry, not to, to, to um, Josiah and his sons. Some of the things happened in the New Testament times, and yet there are some things that still have yet to happen. So when we speak of the day of the Lord, it is a vast subject that sees multiple fulfillments but we will be looking particularly this morning at the final fulfillment of that in God's judgment. Now, what is the day of the Lord? And we looked at that last week and how we are to approach the day of the Lord. We're to come, first of all, with silence before Him. We see this in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God. The day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And so we come with silence. It's not a time for us to... to argue our case. It's not a time for us to clamor and to, to argue and, and bring up our own viewpoints, but rather it is a time for God to speak. That makes it the clear indication that it is the day of the Lord. It is not the day of man. It is God's day. And then, as we come to this day, we are come as guests sanctified, consecrated by God Himself. And then finally, we need to come with awareness as to what this day is. And we spent time hashing out the concept of what this day is. And it is a day of sacrifice. And it is not a sacrifice of a bull or a goat. It's not a sacrifice that propitiates or satisfies God's wrath so that the, per- that, so the people who seek to be underneath that sacrifice are cleansed from that. Rather, the sacrifice is the sinner themselves. They are the ones who are slaughtered in God's wrath. But today, I want us to look further at two more things about this day of the Lord. Let's read verses 8 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll come back. And we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Verse 8, And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all, who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink the wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near, and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry. 
against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. As Zephaniah has described for us and told us how to approach this day, understanding that it is a day of sacrifice, he now turns to describe both the subjects of the day of the Lord and the devastation of the day of the Lord. You know, we all, I think, have dreams. Right? Now, I'm not talking about the dreams that when you fall asleep you see something crazy going on. Things that you'd like to accomplish. We all dream of different things that we'd like to see and do in our lives. I remember when I was a young boy, um, I dreamed of being a, uh, a, a crane. Not a crane operator, a crane. Um, and uh, that was a small, small child in me living in rural southeastern Ohio, uh, wanted to be a crane. I uh, unfortunately did not grow up to be a crane. <laughs> so um, we all have dreams. We all have different things that we'd like to accomplish. And, and as you look back on your life, whether, whether you've been advanced in age and you look back and you see dreams that maybe didn't come to fruition, maybe you're younger in your life and you're looking forward and you have dreams of things that you would like to accomplish, I think... Zephaniah's words to us here are helpful for us in recognizing really what is important in our dreams. One commentator remarking on this entire passage made this statement as sort of a summary about what Zephaniah is describing. It is that life without God is life without a future. Life without God is life without a future. Zephaniah is going to describe many of the things that we may dream of. We talk about the American dream, and and Zephaniah is going to describe many of those things that fill that. And as we dream and as we have desires and things that we'd like to accomplish, the question that Zephaniah is going to bring very clearly into our view is, is God not just a part of those dreams, is He the primary focus of your dreams? And if He's not, you may accomplish all the dreams that you can imagine. You may be richer than Bill Gates and Elon Elon Musk combined. But you can still have no future if you don't seek the Lord. Let's look here, first of all, at the subjects of the day of the Lord. We see Zephaniah 
identifying those who are judged here. We see this in verse 8, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish, and then he goes in and describes who is going to be punished, and he begins by describing the elite. He speaks of the officials, the king's sons, and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Then he speaks of everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. He begins by first focusing on the political elite, officials, and king's sons. These are those who are charged with the responsibility of governing Israel. The officials, or the reference here to the officials, is likely referring to those who exercise immense political power and influence. They are not the king themselves, but they are those whom the king listens to. They are those who the king hears. They are those who are able to be in the court and to advise the king on things. Then he also speaks of the reference, he references the king's sons. And this actually may be a very either prophetic indictment or a pointing to the failure of, of Josiah's own sons, which we'll look at a little bit later. We know that from Scripture that while Josiah sought the Lord, his children did not. And you can actually read of that in Jeremiah 21, 11 through 14, where it, where it describes Josiah's son Zedekiah. What these rulers did is they turned away from the Lord and they arraigned themselves, notice what he says in verse 8, in foreign attire. This is a reference either to the assimilation of the other nations into the life of Israel or a reference to these alliances that these, that these rulers were making with these other nations. And we see that as a problem throughout the history of Israel. God said, trust in me. I will deliver you. I will be the shield and the sword for you. I will fight your battles. But time and time again, we see Israel leading on and depending on alliances with foreign nations, Egypt, Assyria, other nations, thinking that they're going to somehow be the Savior for them when God alone is meant to be their Savior. And so these officials had come to a point where they were turning away from trust in God, finding strength not in Him alone, but in other things. It's also important to note that those with this immense political power and influence, they are the first ones whom God's gaze of wrath focuses on. They will not escape God's judgment. I think sometimes this can be helpful for us in recognizing that the wicked leaders of the world in which we live today, they will not always have their day. There is wickedness in, and corruption in every government on the face of planet Earth. Every single one. But none of them will escape. None of that power, none of that prestige. You, could, you can have all the nuclear armaments of Russia and the United States combined and have your finger on the trigger of those arms and they will do nothing to bring deliverance from those who persist in turning away from God. But it's not only the political elite that are judged. It is also 
the religious elite. In verse 9, he speaks of those on that day he will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Now, this is a somewhat odd phrase for us, and we may be wondering what, what does that talk about? Because, like, I mean, if you've ever jumped into a door, I've done it. Like, is that me? Like, what's, what's going on here? This is actually a reference to an event in 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you remember 1 Samuel chapter 5, there's this event in Israel's history where the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they take it to um, their temple, to the temple of Dagon, and they place the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon. Now, the problem that the Philistines had done is they had mistaken Jehovah, Yahweh, They had mistaken him for the thing in which he chose to reside over, the ark itself. And so they thought, we've stolen Israel's God. And we'll put it before our God, and it will show that Dagon is greater than Yahweh. So they do this the first night, and and they come back the next morning, and what do they find? Dagon is fallen down on his face before the ark. And there's this it's almost comical uh, statement and, and comment by the author of uh, 1 Samuel where he says they propped their God back up. If your God needs propping back up by you, he is no God. And so they put him back up there and, and, uh, and then the next night they come, the next night goes, the next morning they come in. Not only is Dagon on his face before the Ark of the Covenant, but his head and his hands have been chopped off and they lay at the threshold of the door. And there's a comment made there that from that point on, the priests of Dagon would step over the threshold because they thought it would be bad luck to step on the threshold where their God's head and hands had been cut off. So the reference here to those who Zephaniah is likely mocking them, because the the description in 1 Samuel was that they stepped over it. He's like, oh, you're jumping over this. You're trying to avoid this this sort of bad luck thing here. It's, It's almost like the idea, step on a crack, break your mother's back. Like That's the idea. You're jumping over it to avoid this. You're going to be punished. It's a reference to these priests. And it shows how much corruption had fed into Israel at this time so that now, hundreds of years later, after this event had happened, Israel was going back to the worship of Dagon, one of the oldest gods of the Philistines. God says, I will judge them. Both political and religious power is rife for abuse. And we see that at the end of verse 9. Those who engage in these things are those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. These groups were using their power to perpetuate exploitation of the people of Israel. They were in a position where they could wield that power, sometimes seemingly without restriction, and they would use that power to to do all sorts of violence. Not just violence in the sense of physical harm, but violence to the very thing that they were called to look over. In fact, throughout the Scriptures, we see that there are references to 
the priests doing violence to the law in the way that they would exploit it and use it to keep people under their hands and under their fists and under their thumbs. This happened at this time, and it happened even at the time when Christ walked the earth, where he would speak of the scribes, the Pharisees, and he would describe them as what? Hypocrites. And these hypocrites would bind people to all sorts of ridiculous laws that God never required, but they were the religious elite. And they would be the ones to whom Israel must come. They were the brokers of power, particularly that power to know God. You had to come through the scribes. You had to come through the Sadducees. You had to come through this religious class. And they were corrupt, both in how they were exploiting God's people and in how they were leading God's people away and in their own hearts worshiping other gods. Things have not changed much with the religious elite, have they? I know in this area, in particular, we're very familiar, in Pennsylvania, we're very familiar with the scandals that have rocked the Roman Catholic Church. Terrible abuse of children by priests. But it doesn't just affect the Roman Catholic Church. It affects every single Christian denomination and non-Christian denomination across the world. There are scandals in Baptist circles, in Presbyterian circles, in Methodist circles. Power corrupts. And we see that happening here. And there is great truth in recognizing that those who corrupt and use their power for their own needs and their own desires will be judged. No matter who you are, no matter what status you may have, God will visit those who do these things with His wrath. But it is not merely the rulers and the priests who are judged, but it is all the people And while the elite are judged, the people themselves are judged. Look in verse 10. There is description of every section of Jerusalem. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter. And so these two terms are encompassing all of Jerusalem, the holy city. And it's not just the palace, it's not just the temple, but all of Jerusalem stands before God's judgment. He goes on to speak of a loud crash from the hills. It's not just the city itself, but the surrounding areas everywhere. All of mankind will face this destruction. He also speaks in verse 11 of wailing of the inhabitants of the mortar, the traitors who are no more, those who weigh out silver are cut off and The underlying original here is likely a a description of or alluding to the Canaanites themselves. And the Canaanites were known as the men of the mortar, the traitors. And what perhaps Zephaniah is pointing out, which we've seen elsewhere in the Minor Prophets, is a truth that Israel, 
no longer was able to be distinguished from the Canaanites themselves. That they had become so like the nation into which they were sent to possess that God couldn't see any difference. He speaks of how God is going to come and in verse 12, He's going to search Jerusalem with lamps. And the idea here is that God will come and intensely focus on every corner, that there will be no place unsearched and unseen by the eyes of God. God's gaze for this sacrifice is set upon every rebellious inhabitant of Jerusalem and Judah. No one, no one, can escape the gaze of God. We see this in the Scriptures. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are where? Where are they? Every place. Keeping watch on both the evil and the good. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that no creature is hidden from the sight of the Lord, but all of us are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we all must what? Give account. And so the identification of the judge is very clear. It is everyone. Everyone who turns away from the Lord. No one who persists in rebellion will be spared on the day of the Lord's wrath. No one. No one who turns from Him. Now what is it that these who are judged are doing? What are the actions that they do? And we've already seen some of these things. They have accepted idols. Again, Israel has been involved, and this is, a, this is going to be a recurrent theme that's going to come up over and over again. You, you may be thinking, boy, there he goes talking about idols again. I'm just sharing with you what God says. If God repeats something over and over again, do you think he maybe wants us to get the message? And why does he repeat this over and over again? Because our hearts are so prone towards idolatry. And so he calls, he says, the, the, the idols. The, again, we see that reference to the worship of the Philistine god, Dagon. We've already discussed this to some extent, but there's abuse of justice. God's people, Israel, who are supposed to be the light, have fallen into this corruption. And there's a real recognition here of a failure of what the second greatest commandment is. To love our who? Neighbors. And this has been going ever since sin entered the world. Adam and Eve first sinned and Adam's first, first words were to not take responsibility but to blame his neighbor, his only neighbor, his wife. And this continued until we get to Genesis chapter 6 and it speaks of how the entire world was corrupt in God's sight and was filled with violence. We live in a world that is filled with all manner of corruption. And it's not just 
political corruption, although we know and see that all the time. Has there been a president in the history of the United States that has not had scandal? Has there been leaders in, I mean, I, I, it just blows my mind that we see this. This is played out for us on the pages of our newspapers and on the leading broadcasts of our news programs. Corruption in school boards. Corruption in city councils. Corruption everywhere. But it's also among the religious elite who use their place where they're supposed to be trusted, where they're the ones who are showing people the way to God and in having that level of power, instead of showing them the way to God, they show them the way to please themselves. But let's be honest. We all will cry justice when we are harmed, but when we harm others... All we, we don't really think about that, do we? Every single one of us does not love our neighbor as ourselves. And so this acceptance of, the, of idols and abuse of justice is clearly seen here. But there's another issue that's going to become very clear in this passage, and that is that Israel begins to depend upon riches. In one sense, this is another idol And while there is a reference to a physical idol, Dagon, the real idol comes in their idea that they can depend upon riches. If you look in verse 18, their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them. In fact, this silver and this gold is itself a stumbling block of their iniquity. Ezekiel 7, 19, they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. For it, these riches, are themselves the stumbling block of their iniquity. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear as there's this man who comes and wants to follow him and he says, what must I do? And he says, you you keep these commandments. He's like, I've done all these things. What What else is required? Sell all that you have and follow me. Simple request, right? And what does this man do? He goes away sorrowful. Why? Because he had many riches. And and Jesus Seeing that this man had become sad, he says, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the the kingdom of God. And his disciples who heard it said, Well, then who can be saved? And with us, it's impossible. But praise God, with Him, nothing is impossible. Dependence on riches. And then the final thing that's mentioned here is complacency towards God. And these two things are linked. One of the reasons why it is so difficult for the rich man 
to enter the kingdom of God is because it calls for him to give up the thing that he loves so much. His riches, his comfort, his wealth. And so what ends up happening is is rich people, they're not really having a lot of animosity towards God. They just really become practically agnostic. Notice what he says in verse 12. As he is searching Jerusalem so that he can punish the men, these men, he describes, are those who are complacent. Now, this term complacent is sort of interesting, and the ESV is, is seeking to make it sort of easier for us to understand what's being said here. The literal idea speaks of uh, wine thickening on its lees. And so I know, I, I know we have a lot of uh, winemakers out there today, and you know, know exactly what that means, right? <laughs> so let me, let me explain the, 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 the symbolism. And for the people of Israel to whom this was written, this would have been very clear. When wine is being made, uh, while it still needs to properly ferment it, it ha- and, and come to the right state of purification, what happens is the impurities drop to the bottom. And once it's reached that particular point, then what it needs to be done is it needs to be filtered. And it needs to be taken out and the, and the wine needs to be taken uh, through a sieve so that all those impurities at the bottom can be taken out. And if they're not... If they're allowed to stay there, then the wine becomes stagnant and those impurities begin to corrupt the wine and it becomes like a congealed, rotten mess. And that is what Zephaniah is saying about those who are complacent about God. They become nothing but rancid, jelly-like wine. And notice he says this again very clear. What does it mean to be complacent? It's those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They consider the Lord neither an adversary nor an advantage. As one commentary states about this, this is not atheism or agnosticism as a dogma, but rather practical atheism. It does not say God is not there, but God is not here. Not that God does not exist, but that He does not matter. And I wonder how many of our own lives at different times we have walked as though God does not matter. And Zephaniah is being abundantly clear here that God will search His people and root out those who are complacent towards Him. What does Jesus say in Revelation chapter 3? The church of Laodicea, right? I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you were lukewarm and either hot nor cold, I will spit and really, to be very literal, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What For you say, and what is it that is causing them to have this complacency? I am rich. I have prospered. And I need Nothing. Not realizing that you are really wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
The reality is that we are rich in this world, aren't we? We're very rich. We're ridiculously rich in America. I think everyone here came on, in a car, right? Most of your cars are working okay. You had heat in your car. You came from a house that hopefully was warm. You have clothes on your backs. You'll leave here and you'll go and, and you're not worried. There's no sense of food insecurity. You have, you have things to entertain you throughout the day. There's so many things. We're so rich. It's ridiculous. And we think that our riches, we think that these things that we have accumulated, that we need nothing. And in reality, we don't need anything physical. We don't need anything from this world. So what does Jesus say to this church at Laodicea? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. The only gold that satisfies, the only riches that we should be concerned with are the riches that Christ gives to his people. That he would give us white garments so that we can clothe ourselves and the shame of our nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint our eyes so that you may see. And then here's, here's what happens. As we come to these verses and we realize that, Jesus, that, that God is talking, yes, to a people that lived thousands of years ago, but that the message is just as relative for us today. We have to realize as we feel the rebuke of the Holy Spirit that God does that because he loves us. I, repute, I reprove those whom I love and I discipline them. So what should be the response for us? Zeal for the Lord and repentance of our dependence on riches. Each one of these things, acceptance of idols, abuse of justice, dependence on riches that brings about complacency towards God. I think if we examine our lives, if we examine the past month, maybe even the past week, maybe even the past hours, we can find in our own hearts these very principles at work in us. And God comes to rebuke that through what Zephaniah says. Was God is very clear about who is being judged and why they are being judged, he now turns to describe the despair of this day. We're going to move quickly through these things. And you're laughing to yourselves quickly. Yeah, right. I'm going to try. Zephaniah is very clear here that the day of the Lord is a day of despair. It is first and foremost an inescapable day. Again, we've already described how it's a day where God will search. There's no place to hide. There's no place where we can go away from this. And throughout the Scriptures, no one can escape God's judgment through their own efforts. Remember what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. What did, what did they do immediately? They hid themselves. Could they escape the judgment, no, but they hid themselves. 
There was no escape from the flood in Genesis chapter 6. God leaves no one untouched by uh, His wrath during the Passover except those who were under the lamb, the blood of the lamb that was slaughtered there. Everyone, and, and the, the, the description in the promise of that is explicit, that even the handmaiden who is behind the cart, if she has a firstborn, it will be taken. As Israel was entering the promised land and, and Achan had taken the riches of, of, of the nations that were meant to be devoted to destruction, he couldn't hide it. Even though he dug it down into his tent, God sought them out and found them. David resorted to, resorted to murder to hide his sin with Bathsheba, and God rooted that out. And the book of Revelation tells us that on the day of God's judgment, the most remote and hidden place, the caves and among the rocks, they will not provide shelter and they will not hide us from the great and terrible day of the Lord. There is no escape from this wrath. It is an inescapable day, but secondly, it is a day of mourning. We see throughout this, there is a cry, a wail. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortars. The focus on wailing and crying depicts an intense despair and worry the screams of those who are caught up in the wrath of God haunt this passage. Now it's important to note that this is not a wail of genuine repentance. Rather it is a wail of being caught and having to suffer the consequences of sin. There is a mourning that is blessed Matthew chapter 5, it tells us, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But the mourning there is not over sin's consequences. The mourning there is because one has realized that they have sinned. Worldly grief brings no hope. Godly grief does. And so, the day of the Lord is a day of mourning. Thirdly, the day of the Lord is a day of destruction. See this in verses 14 through 16. It is first a day that comes quickly. Notice what he says. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. If we look at what the Scriptures say, if we look at some of Christ's final words in Revelation, the final words recorded in the Bible, what does Jesus say? I am coming what? Soon. And when He comes soon, what is He bringing with Him? His recompense. His judgment. So that He can repay each one what He has done. And so Zephaniah points to that reality. He points to this day of destruction. It's a day where man's accomplishments will be destroyed if we look at all the accomplishments that the religious and political elite have accomplished the things that they have brought among themselves they will all be vacated 
Amos chapter 5, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. If we see this in verse 13, Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, They shall not drink wine from them. And this is actually a restatement of the curse that God gives when He first gives the law to Israel. He says, I'm putting before you two ways, a way of blessing and a way of cursing. Blessing if you obey the law. Cursing if you turn from it. And He promises in Deuteronomy 28, you'll betroth the wife, but another man shall ravish her. You'll build a house, but you'll not dwell in it. You'll plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. And that is exactly what God is promising to happen to His people here in Zephaniah. Man's accomplishments will be destroyed. His resources will be destroyed. It speaks of how the military resources and financial resources will be destroyed. Again, their their gold and their silver will not be able to deliver them on the day of God's wrath in verse 18. Speaks in verse 16 of how it is a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. And even in verse 14, it speaks of this day being a day of bitterness and that there is a mighty man who is crying aloud there. The image is of a warrior. Think of the strongest, most successful warrior you can think of. Built with strong muscles, arrayed in fine armor, able and who has had many victories over many other of their enemies. And on the day that the Lord comes and brings His wrath, they will be reduced to nothing but a crying puddle of nothingness. The strongest among us will weep because they've been defeated. Not only will man's resources be destroyed, but his abilities will be destroyed. In verse 17, he speaks of how he'll bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. This literally was fulfilled in Josiah's son, Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. And they were taken captive by the Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar took him and, and made, a, made a spectacle of him. And the last thing that Zedekiah saw were the faces of his children as Nebuchadnezzar slaughtered them. And then Nebuchadnezzar pierced his eyes, put them out. And he lived the rest of his days in blindness. This is a day where everything that we have depended on, everything that we hold dear, everything that we look to for hope apart from God is swept away. And finally, it is a bloody day. 
Again, as we've already seen in verse 17, we looked at this last week, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. The final thing we see is that this day will bring about the final and complete destruction of mankind himself. If you look at the end of verse 18, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. We see this in Revelation 19. Describing Christ on the white horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And on that day, This angel will swing his sickle across the earth. He'll gather the grape harvest of the earth and throw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This day is a day in which all who rebel against God will be judged. And it is fearful. So how should we respond to this day? What should we do with these words? They're somber and they're sobering. There is no pulling of punches, no no smoothing out or softening the blow of what God will do to those who persist in rebelling against Him on His day. What should we do? Well, first, we need to reject idolatry. We must reject idolatry. Again, that reference to these jumping over the threshold, those looking to these gods, it's useless. Any God that we look to apart from Yahweh will fall before Him with their head and their hands cut off. We need to reject the idolatry of money. We live in a society that is focused on materialism. We're going to be entering that very soon. Thanksgiving is Thursday. What's happening Friday? Black Friday. It is just amazing to me how clear the hypocrisy of our society is. We'll spend one day supposedly giving thanks, and on the next day, we'll fight each other for Tickle Me Elmo. What what does God say about money? It's the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money itself. It's the love of it. And it is through the craving for money that some have wandered from the faith. And when you wander from the faith, you don't put yourself in a better position. You pierce yourself through with many painful pangs. You know, 
we've had these outrageous jackpots recently in the lottery, right? Billions of dollars. And I'll be honest, if one of you won that, I would not refuse the tithe <laughs> on that. And we, we, you know, we look at that and we think, oh man, imagine what I could do if I won the lotto. Imagine if I had a billion dollars. Imagine what I could do. And we're fools to think that way. We're fools to think that way. What does James say about those who have riches? They need to what? Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. What do riches do? They rot. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. I mean, th th think about this. James does not view riches as a blessing. He views them as a curse. We need to, we need to radically change our view of money. It's a tool that God blesses us with. And yes, He blesses some with a lot more and some with little. But listen, money will mean nothing to you on the day that the Lord comes. So we need to reject idolatry. We need to secondly rest in God's goodness. The description here of the political leaders and the religious leaders is of those of corruption and exploitation. But God does not do that. He is the ruler of this universe and He directs all things in His providential goodness. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good! Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And so what we need to do is as we recognize that, we have to realize when we're facing difficulties in life, when things don't work out well, when we're dealing with the exploitation and the corruption of this world, it's not for us to question God. Look at what Malachi says. You've wearied the Lord with your words. Well, what is it that we've done? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he who delights in, him, um, in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? We languish in this world that is filled with corruption and we cry out to God complaining about it. And God says, listen, here's the God of justice. I send my messenger. He'll prepare the way before me and I, the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly appear in His temple. And that happened when Jesus of Nazareth came to earth. That's how we find hope. Where is the God of justice? He is crucified, risen, and reigning in heaven today. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Find blessing in taking refuge in Him. And then we need to imitate God's goodness. Let's not be like the world that is corrupt. Let's seek to love our neighbor as ourselves. As we love God supremely, that enables us to love others sacrificially. 
We're to be like him. Rejecting injustice, rejecting defrauding others. Listen, you may not be able to control what's happening in Washington, D.C. or what's happening in other nations around the world. In fact, I'm pretty sure, unless I'm highly mistaken, none of you have that type of influence. But you know who you can influence? Your wife or your husband, your children, your co-workers, your neighbors, this body of believers. Let's throw aside deceit and corruption. Let's turn away from manipulation for our own purposes. And let's love each other as God loves us. So we need to reject idolatry, rest in God's goodness, imitate God's goodness, and then finally, we need to seek salvation in nothing but Christ. The reality is that this is the word of the Lord. Look at verse 10 with me for a second. On that day, who is speaking? Declares who? The Lord. There is this sort of idea about fire and brimstone preachers, right? Always calling down the wrath of God from heaven. This is not me railing on a hobby horse. This is the Word of God. Take it or leave it, but it is His Word. And there is a reality that if you persist in turning away from God and turning to these things, the promises that God makes here will be poured out on you. And that is a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And you may be thinking, well, that's the message for people who don't go to church. Do you realize that that verse in Hebrews is directed towards the people of God? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Is this passage not fearful? Look at verse 15. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness, trumpet blast, battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is what happens to those. This is what they can be assured of, of those who turn from God. So what are we to do? Turn to Christ. Peter says to a crowd that is seeking to stone him, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be what? Saved. The wonderful, glorious hope of the gospel is that what is described here, what is inevitable for those who persist in rebellion against God, you can be saved from it by turning to Christ. There's no one else who can save you but Him. There's no one else who can ensure that you will not face these things. And so when we read of what God will do to those who reject Christ, when we see this description of His day, it should cause us to run to Jesus all the more. To trust Him and rest in Him. He is our only hope. He is the only one who saves. There is salvation in no other name but His. Why Christ? Because God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mention that the day of the Lord is a day that is expansive and has many events. One of those events was when Christ hung on the cross on Calvary. And everything described here, all the horrors, all the horrors of this passage were unleashed upon Christ for us. And so if we turn to Him, repenting of dependence on all these other things and trusting in Him, we will be justified by His blood and we will be saved by Him from what? The wrath of God. This is a harrowing passage. It is fearful, but it is not inevitable because you can turn to Christ and be saved from this wrath. Would you do that today if you never have? When we come to passages like this, that's what our response must be. And we're just getting warmed up as we go through the minor prophets. It should make Christ so much more precious to us as we see what He has saved us from. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we ask that you would break up the hard ground of our hearts. Father, may the fearful descriptions given here turn us to find hope in Christ. May we turn from riches. May we turn from idols. May we not seek corruption. May we not complain about your providence. May we recognize that the God of justice is found in Christ. May we turn to Him all the more. Thank you that we can be saved from your wrath through Him. May that be the testimony of everyone here this morning. We pray.